Oh, you guys are drinking beers. We were, yeah. Oh, well, no, I'm gonna start yeah. with tea because I'm really cold. Yeah, yeah. But then maybe I'll have a beer after that. Yeah. Totally. You know what's crazy? I had the original poster from the Times of that, really? which was smaller in the 90s in LA, and I probably still have it somewhere. Well, see, you should keep of it. That, but I have the like the original one that Mike Kelly made for some okay. LA show. Oh, in the amazing. 90s yeah with those same I know th especially like that orange puppet like haunts my dreams <laughs> that's the thing forever. It's, a, it's a pretty intense thing to have like I've been debating what to do with it because I like you have to keep it it's I mean, beautiful why you don't like it anymore well it's just like a very imposing thing to have like around like decoratively in a way you know what I mean like mm, yeah it's uh well because this room sort of is like sometimes I try to use a studio so, but it's kind of the only wall that's like big enough for it. But it's a cool thing. I mean, I, I got it, I ripped it out like there's a, there was like a subway thing that was like a haunt or something. And I just like opened up. I mean, uh, it was long, it was long after the show. Was, yeah, totally. But it was like months after the show was down. Like, so it was like a relative passing. I had these amazing posters from the 90s. And I lived in LA. It wasn't laid out like that, but it was that, those puppets in and then I had this amazing Bruce LaBruce poster with Tony Ward looking really incredible. So, uh, well, so one thing like that we were just talking about that sort of segues into what I was sort of imagining we would start anyway is that like you being in LA or, or like that history and maybe also because uh, it was as you're kind of thinking about how to approach talking about like the work like um, when I like read in some Google book or something it was like you studied under Michael Asher right mm -hmm. like which is maybe it's like an annoying place to start in some ways but like also but mm -hmm. was kind of locked some things into place that like maybe wouldn't necessarily be immediate apparent so um, yeah so I was kind of interested in maybe starting there. Sure, sure, we can talk about that. Um, uh, yes, I studied with Michael Asher um, at a very pivotal moment, or I, maybe that's a chicken or an egg question, yeah. um, but it was pivotal. There were a couple of people that year, which would have been 1992 or three, 1993, I guess, mm. um, and um, the others were Charles Gaines. Okay. Um, and Tom Lawson, um, the oh. the three of them, uh, embraced the um, strange thing, which was that this um, composer had arrived in the art school. So the previous year, I had been enrolled in Cal Arts for graduate school, but I thought I was doing the composition program, and I was in the music school. And then. Um, Actually, and then the fourth really key person at that moment was Morton Sabotnik, who okay. was my music school teacher. Tell me, I, I don't know, that's not a name. Okay, Morton Sabotnik um, is a very famous um, electroacoustic composer. He's associated with um, uh, synths and early computer music. And um, he's, uh, he's still with us, he's cool. He lives in New York now, and he's married to Joan LaBarbera, oh, the okay. amazing vocalist who's performed uh, you know, Feldman and yeah. Reich and all kinds of important stuff, um, as well as her own stuff, of course. Um, but, um, but it was Mort who said, um, 
Marina, you, um, no one has any idea what to talk to you about in our program. Well, I think you would fit in really well on the other side of the building in the, um, in the fine arts program. And I was like, really? Um, Charles Gaines was there. Yeah. Well, it was just like, he said, you know, um, the whole kind of structure of, you know, this, and this does speak to how I have approached being um, part of the leadership in the um, BARD MFA, because what it means to sort of enact interdisciplinarity um, in a pedagogical situation um, is something that I had to think about a lot because that wasn't obvious at all for me and I didn't even know that my work was interdisciplinary I was going to say were you surprised when he said I don't really remember what my emotions were but I was very enthused about it once I thought about it and they were very nice to me there and so I had to like apply as a student applying to art school who had never made art interesting I was like I'm this composer who's over there on the other side of this kind of Fancy. weird building you know like cal arts yeah. is where they filmed sleeper the woody allen film oh, yeah, yeah. so this funny kind of like 70s modern building with tunnels and passageways and it was futuristic at its time it's very storied in this way like uh, I, don't, I mean some of those institutions that, yeah like, there's a lot of different like for for sure about. for sure and i had to kind of figure out why who these storied people were on the other side there because yeah. i i didn't know that history really i never studied art history before like I mean, at that time, that's you, so interesting. But they must have picked up on something in your work. That was... Yeah, I mean, they they immediately accepted me, and then the music school was very cool because I had this scholarship from this amazing um, woman who, I'm sure she must have passed away by now, but she was named Betty Freeman, and she was this um, like mentor to contemporary music. West Coast. She was kind of like a West Coast Guru. smaller, well, like a like a Peggy Guggenheim or something like that. Oh, so interesting. She would like support like students, a patron. and yeah, like a patron of the arts. Except usually those people patron. are collectors. What's patron. that? Patron. <laughs> a patron. Did you say patron? <laughs> Did you say pager? That's <laughs> <Yeah>, a <said> pager. <laughs> um. Um, yeah. So she. So they let me keep my scholarship funding, but go to art school, wow. which was great. So I really have a lot of debt to CalArts, and um, it was a very interesting time for me. So, so that's how I found my way into Michael Asher's class. And then that became like a more fluid kind of conversation with like what was going uh, on. You know, I was very confused at the time, um, much as I am today. Um, but somehow uh, I was able to um, kind of begin to show the things I was making. Another person was there who was very influential to me was uh, Lane Relier. Oh, okay. Interesting. Actually, Lane was probably the one who said to me, you know, those strange songs you're making, you could just show those in the context of these crit classes in so the art school. Wow, he's like now known as a writer, right? He like, was a writer at the time, writer, but like he was a... teaching, like I took a class with him um, on the 70s. Oh, yeah. This was the 90s. Which <laughs> was a great class. Recent history. Yeah. I was like, I just, I must have been like a sponge. You know, it was just like all these things were coming at me. And I had come from a very, um, my background was very strongly, um, my father was a classical musician. Right. So I had like come out of that um, whole kind of 
uh, I'll call it a regime, like an aesthetic regime where there were very clear values uh, about what was good and bad. Um, and on my mother's side, also her father had been a painter. He was an abstract painter and uh, like a Provincetown painter. What would you say those values were? Or like what? Well, on, his, on, the, on the visual art side, coming out of my mother's history, she was very much enthralled to her, her father. He was kind of a macho guy, I guess, and he uh, exerted his views freely in the family. Um, but he was definitely like a high modernist. Hmm. Um, and he had come up like, you know, rough and tumble, immigrant, uh, that whole mid-century American thing. Like he, there was all kind of family mythology about him, like, you know, earning his way to go to see art in Europe by like brawling and painting portraits of the captain's mistress, or you know, st like crazy stories and like pirate stories, all that. Like, um, <laughs> maybe <laughs> I don't know. I never thought ah, of it, like the <laughs> pirate, but you know, th those times were interesting. Um, they, you know, he. Like for instance, um, we didn't have Dr. Seuss books because, like, the the style of illustration of Dr. Seuss, although it was popular with other like liberal what? progressive families or something like that. Like my grandfather was in the background going, "Like that's bad art." It was too bourgeois. I don't know what it was honestly. <laughs> if I think about it now, I I honestly have no idea. But it's interesting. I know he see. also really hated Warhol. Like huh. that was like, and he also hated abstract expressionism. He hated a lot of stuff. Like, oh, well, okay. Wow. He had this very um, particular. So it sounds like he had a, a regime as much as your dad had kind of a. There were two competing regimes. Yeah. Um, so it was really good for me to move to California. Yeah. So I was just like, I have to get out of here. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. Um, yeah. So, okay, but that so was then, one of the reasons I moved to California, to be perfectly honest. So you were like trained, like you had like that classical piano training and like... I had a, I had a music background um, that was very important for me. Yeah. I was very like uh, into it and I loved music, um, but I had like a weird kind of like, I liked to do it and I wanted to make it. But I also didn't want to um, do it inside the lines that of like what I had that come up to do, and it just didn't seem actually like it could be done otherwise. Which is, I think, what happened when I got to CalArts, and then I was like, "Well, I have to use some other material or something like this horrendous keyboard thing, this piece of furniture, and like that." I just had to like banish it. And then I had to just start banishing everything. And I was left in a really strange, emptied out place. So was that And the then point? they were like, you should, so I was yeah. like, I don't know what I was doing. I was writing pieces that just had words and like no sounds. Or I wrote a piece for the piano that only had one note. I mean, I was like going, I was kind of losing it probably. <laughs> and they were like, you should be in the art school. So that's how, that's how that happened. So then did you stay in California after? Well, what happened was um, I did. I stayed for like the rest until 1999. Uh, well, okay. But if I would just say anything about Michael Asher, yeah. since that's where we began, yeah, yeah. Um, what I really, really 
got from that experience, that famous post-studio experience, which were like, I sort of feel like I later read about it a little bit by like Rancière or somebody, but like we didn't talk about that at the time. I don't know if that text had even been written, yeah, The Ignorant Schoolmaster, but it was like anyone can speak, take it slow. There's no time limit, so you don't have to be smart the first time you speak. You could be like waiting for two hours and then speak while you thought about what the conversation was about. And we would just tease work apart um, based on like a sort of radically material-based set of tools, kind of. So it would be like, what is it made of? What could we say about what it's made of? Mm. Um, it even if you didn't have um, a kind of sophistication around history, which I didn't have yet at that time, yeah. there was an avenue in, or like Michael acknowledged so many different avenues into getting down to the kernel of like what was present in an artwork. Mm-hmm. So it's probably like the greatest most accelerated way that I could have found to like access a whole other discourse and then just sort of locate myself there quickly and and then it was sort of like I landed somewhere else and then I could turn back towards what I had been making with new tools or something like that. Was he like beloved at the time? Very much so. Yeah almost like a yeah interesting. Then, Very much so. And then, so you, you, I'm surprised to hear that you were in California until '99. Because I feel like yeah. in some of the interviews, like you talk about, like like Green Naftali or like the New York Gallery. Kind well, of I kind of came back and forth a little bit. Yeah. So yeah, like I did some stuff in the late '90s in New York, but I was still technically living in LA. And then is like the end of, like when you were saying, like you kind of had the piano, you like looking for these other tools, and sort of when the like dub plate or that kind of um, yeah so yeah. the whole turntable thing and the dub plates was a um, way of not addressing the piano yeah the piano has always been the elephant in the room for me and it's actually quite funny now that we're talking about this that it's become extremely central right finally literally when you called me to reschedule this there was a piano playing in the background like even even before so much so that i thought it was well like, it wasn't me playing <laughs> but yes yeah <laughs> it's completely essential can you explain what dub plates are though sure um dub plates are a um, they're an intermediary step in the pressing process when you make an LP. So they're a prefabricated, usually a 12-inch, but you could have a dub plate that's a 10-inch, for instance, or I guess a 7 I mean, I've never seen a 7-inch one, but they must exist. They're like, it looks like a record, and it has actually a metal uh, layer inside. It's like a metal circle, and then it has a coating of acetate on both two sides. They're sometimes called acetates. Uh, and that's like much, much softer than vinyl, so it can be cut into. So it's a test press from another source. So it could be from, I mean, like mm-hmm. in the olden days, they could cut directly to dub plate, but normally now you would have a recording. Um, in other words, it's not like a band playing in there and then you're cutting it. You know, right, that's right. like a very early form of it. but. You're just tracing a line um, from a recording, so it's cutting that groove. Mm-hmm. 
So it gets cut in real time. So it's like a very beautiful kind of analog process that results in a very uh, mutable, like kind of not fixed copy of the thing that you might be planning to make in the future. Or in my case, I started just making those. Oh, yeah, okay, because I was imagining that it was just a cheaper way to make an imprint of like from a pre grooved stamp. But it sounds like no, what you would make a stamp from it. You, if the dub plate is played once and it's deemed acceptable, then you would avoid playing it again because mm -hmm. you would degrade it. And you can make a metal stamp from it, which is a negative of your record, which will then be used to stamp positive copies. But it's a direct corollary vinyl. to the audio. Yes. Yeah. But what happens as it degrades? Like, is that so you lose um, the, like, you start to gouge out the material out of the groove um, because it's softer uh -huh. than vinyl by quite a lot. So you, you lose, like, there's always a ratio of signal to noise, and it starts to shift. So you get noise and you lose signal. So you start to produce, like, um, a second order of sound from your sound. So that's what I got really interested in. But also, like, deed, I mean, it's interesting to think, uh, one thing that occurred to me as I was thinking about, like, that element was just, like, how, like, DJ culture must have been, is, like, was such a thing at that time. And, yeah. Right, and it's sort of, like, in part what you're kind of responding to, right? Definitely. I mean, it just was a whole other um, way of making music manually. I was accustomed to my hands being like an important, like it would be like if you were painting and yeah. then you had some kind of ideological reason that you were like, you were not going to paint. Sure. But you're are, used to doing that. It's called like a Tuesday. Yeah. So like, <laughs> exactly. So this was like an adjacency for me. Yeah. Um, but then it took on a, you know, a big life of its own and it, it, um, it kind of, so many things one might find interesting about um, audio culture, about DJ culture, about transmission, about objectness, about like materials, about recording. Yeah. It's all potentially swirling around this kind of amazing object. And, and that's like still a pretty consistent like tool, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because I had actually written down a note to ask you like how you think about your work in terms of performance because as you were saying your background is in more direct sort of composition and performance and um, well we're talking about my teenage years i mean it's not like you know into my 20s i was a pianist right, right, yeah. right. we're talking about i mean it would be the same like if you were like a big high school track star or something and people were like well how does that affect you and you're like well that was in 11th grade yeah, yeah. i mean right. <laughs> No, but I mean, in terms of like your background and then in terms of this sort of like tension between um, when you think about DJ performance, it's very different. And when you add the dynamic of a dub plate who's very sonal, sonal? Sonic. So, sonic? sonic oral? Oral. Um, quality is, is mutable or is sort of in transition itself. It adds another layer of performativity to your or it adds a like another factor to the way that you're 
the thing, the elements that you're dealing with. It's not, you know, as straightforward as just putting a record on. You know, I think um, I think that's true, and I think part of my attraction to dub plates um, has actually, as you, I think you're pointing out, um, has been that they do model or mirror in some way um, a, an aspect of the relationship I personally have to sound, which is that um, uh, I have this kind of um, inability that I don't know if that's shared generally with people, but for me, things never, the, the same thing never sounds the same. I have a really um, kind of heightened um, sense of flux, I guess, around rec even recorded sounds that I know objectively would be identical from day to day, like say if it's a digital file. Okay. Um, the way in which I hear is so, um, I'm very, I have like a, I don't know really how to describe it, but I have like a kind of hyper subjective um, self-awareness about how I listen and how um, much of what what I hear personally anyway I can't say that what one hears but how I hear um, how much of it is coming from outside of the thing itself is kind of a transaction between it and me mm -hmm. and even knowing what note is coming or like what word is coming or that a siren is going to be happening uh, doesn't it doesn't matter like I will still be I'm almost in a kind of panic listening back like the idea of listening back to something so like this this object that is changing was for me more um, realistic is there like a discourse around that in like the sound community so to speak because one thing that I'm like listening to some of these pieces that like it did occur to me was like how different a sense, I mean, it's very basic, right? Like, how different a sense it is than, like, visual sense, like, in, which seems related to kind of what you're saying. It's like, a, something more unstable about it, maybe? Um, but, yeah, I wonder, like, is that... You know, I, I don't know. Maybe. There's some... There's... I, I think that there's not very much discussion of the exact thing that I'm trying to describe, or, yeah. the, or there can... It can be there in, like, a very hazy way, which is also not what I'm talking about. Like... I'm not really talking about phenomenology. Yeah. I'm talking about a kind of transactive position that I occupy relative to my own sounds and maybe your sounds or other people's sounds too. But like, um, there's something that I'm acknowledging about the transaction with with listening that is um, not. It's not a function of like science. And it's not actually philosophical. It's in a third category, and I'm not sure what I would call it. But it's um, it's a material reality for me. Hmm. Interesting. It's like almost like memory, or like more like in that kind of. I mean, I think memory is a very important part of it because we do, or we we have to, even if it happens rapidly, we have to um, kind of produce a symbolic relationship to listening very quickly listening is always sort of retrospective yeah. which is always of course a visual you know has spective in there it's, we use vision to describe almost all 
sound things, which is always fucked up. <laughs> it's the um, most dominant. Like you a, know, yeah. retroactive, I guess you could say, instead of retrospect. It's, it's after the fact. Yeah. So there's like loss that is a kind of, like loss is the central category of sound, dissipation, whatever you want to call it. Mm. Yeah. So a lot of what I do uh, with my own listening um, starts from a kind of, you know, I don't know when it, I mean, that's, that's where I'm located. Yeah. For Wait. better or for worse. But so to go back to like the, cause we were, you know, the like dumb, dumb plate, like, uh, but so then the other like nineties, right? Like instrument that seems like you have a big relationship with is also guitar, right? Like, or, which came later. Yeah. Or? Cause no, that was a simultaneously, yeah. simultaneously. Yeah. Because also there was like such a big band era. Yeah. You know, after I after I was in California for five minutes, I took note of like the band culture. It was I was very. Um, what do you mean by the band culture? You know, like bands. <laughs> <laughs> well, I know what I mean by like, bands, but <laughs> what do you mean? I just so I thought it, you know, especially like I was like, oh my god, what happened? I'm in art school also, which to me was. Great, but it was also kind of funny because I didn't set out to go to art school. Yeah, and I was suddenly I was like in art school, and LA in the '90s was, uh, you know, it's great because we're I'm thinking about this now because we're looking at this Mike Kelly poster in your studio. Um, but like this was right when I was in Cal Arts. That was right at the beginning of, um, or before maybe, this kind of incredible consolidation of energy around art schools in LA yeah like suddenly there was like art center and CalArts and UCLA and like um, a few other it, you know it was like suddenly all the artists had distributed themselves and were teaching out one or the other and there was like slightly different approaches you yeah. know there was this kind of like oh so Jorge mean... Pardo thing going on at art center and Mike Kelly was there and Steve Frino was there and then we had our crew like band <laughs> in the sense of like a posse no, no, I mean bands, but then everyone had bands. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, uh, all those people, like, right? Like Kelly, Prina, yeah. like, they're all like musicians. Like, I, mean, and, I mean, yeah, you know, that was something I had to wrap my mind around too. Was like, how they were people distributed themselves between being artists and musicians. Right. And, you know, at that time also, it was really nothing like now. Now everyone seems to be also like calling themselves a composer or like, talking about how important, you know, like sound is in their practice or yeah. something like that. But at that moment, it was completely outside of anything the art world was interested in, as far as I, my experience. Yeah, yeah. And like the only music that was um, sanctioned around art had to be kind of a, addressed as a ready-made. There was no interest in making experimental music. This experimental music scene in LA was like as large as like would fit in this studio right now. Let me rephrase. It was like, like twelve people. What I feel like I'm here just because like I'm, it's interesting. Like so, when you're saying like the band kind of culture, like which is around LA, like would kind of. I mean, I mean, you know, again with Mike Kelly, it makes me think of like Destroy All Monsters or something, right? It's like that uh, very male, like kind of like we're gonna take rock as like. At its most basic form and kind of perform it in this like yeah it was still punk everyone yeah. was still interested in punk but it's not like compositional you know no yeah. composition was like um you know actually that was a great conversation i remember having with lane relier he was like it's fine if you do it but you have to like 
just realized like it, it ha- it's so he was like and maybe that's what's good about it but it's really wrong <laughs> you know is that I don't remember the language that he yeah, used yeah. but we had this great conversation about it he was like anything compositional is just gonna seem like old fashioned oh, no. and um, like not Huh. That was yeah. what was striking me about your what you were saying was that you were watching all these people who had bands and you were coming at it from a much more informed, musically informed Well, I mean, I don't like to, I don't want to say whether I'm informed or more informed or less informed than anyone else, but I would say that I had, like, my interest mm-hmm. was in how sounds, um, you know, how sounds become music like what what constitutes a kind of um, basic set of conditions under which one could make music. Like and I was trying structural. to break it down. Yeah, like, you know, like we had like, um, yeah, like there were filmmakers doing um, structuralist kind of film extras that were very influential to me at that time maybe yeah. more than anything I've also and, and then again on the other side of all this like I wasn't also finding a single composer to be interested in there was like one or two people but like I wasn't I just was widening my circle to find the necessary language and sort of to look for some terms that would that would work for me and so would you like show or the work that you're making kind of in that time and post like where like would works travel both to galleries and to non-art spaces like or you know I mean would you like what kind of context would this like these you know compositions and performances around then there was a little bit of both it was it was always it's always been both yeah it's always been both. Um, the, I, I started, I did the first year Frost Orchestra, which was my 17-woman electric guitar yeah, orchestra, in the last year at CalArts. It was, would have been in, like, the winter of 93. Can you briefly describe that, just to give people context, assuming there's a yeah, couple so, of people who don't... <laughs> so the Sheer Frost Orchestra was, um, uh, it kind of... That took me by surprise. It took on a life of its own. Like I kept on having to do it again. I always, I never thought I would do it. That's what every rock star says. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It was, uh, you know, it's funny because I just had a conversation about it a couple of nights ago. Because they're gonna they're gonna perform it at a symposium in in Chicago at the end of this year. And I I usually I'm just like no no you can't like if someone gets in touch I'm like no 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 no, you don't want to do that. Really? But this one seems really interesting, so it's like I'm gonna. What made this one happen? It's like a symposium on like the gender and women and contemporary ah. music practice and. It's like a weirder context, right? It seems like a good context. It was this cool woman called me from the Mocrap Ensemble in Chicago. Ah, cool. Um, we have to. Uh, I'll edit yeah. that. I'm sorry for that. Um, <laughs> but. Um, yeah, so the Sheer Frost Orchestra was like, yeah, it was part of this kind of interest in bands. Like, you know, I was like, oh, I gotta get in on this, but <laughs> it's so fucked up. Like, it was so lame, also. All the bands were, t- were horrible. Um, so. How did you find the 17 people? Like, are... Well, wait, David, let her explain what the oh, piece yeah, is. Yeah. Let me tell you what it yeah. is first. Uh, let's see. Okay, so it's a 17 woman um, performance. Um, the idea was to play the guitar, but to be amateur, so like not, 
you know, like not have to know how to play the guitar. And it turned out none of us knew how to play the guitar, so that was fine. Like I truly did not know how to play the guitar. I had just, I had gotten an electric bass and I was playing around with it in my studio at that time. And I was just playing it with objects and like touching it and turning the amp, turning the amp up high. And I discovered that nail polish bottles uh, were really um, excellent sound producing implements. I think that's what happened. That was the first step. And I was like, oh, I could do like, I wonder what it would sound like if there were a lot of these. <laughs> so it really just happened very naturally in the studio. It was just a result of fucking around. And then I just decided to do like a really strict performance out of it. Because I, I, I thought like how many how many rules of, of this all these rock bands can I violate in one piece? <laughs> so the first was to have all women. Um, and then the next was to not ever touch the guitar and especially not hold it up and put it on your <laughs> pelvis in the phallic fashion that guitars had to normally be played at that time. Also, remember how low everyone had their guitars back then? Yeah, it was, like, <laughs> it was like, so limbo, obvious. Yeah. yeah, so I was like, we're going to play it and we're never going to touch it. It's going to be completely mediated through this glass of these bottles and all the different... Um, the different, uh, you know, and like, I, I never really wore nail polish, but I borrowed it. So it was just, a, you know, just accumulated it somehow. Yeah. I actually I hate nail polish. I can't stand the feeling of it. Mm -hmm. So it was just always an art material. Like, I, it wasn't like, oh, I love to wear nail polish. So. <laughs> I'm going to make a piece about how yeah. much I love it. So then it was necessary to structure it. And then it was like, oh, well, I actually know how to write scores because I've been studying composition for a few years. Yeah. So I created a graphic notation method that um, used like a it was like a sixth gesture, one fisted uh, method. It was the drop, the drag, the slide, the drone, the hop, maybe. So these were six like different. And then the A. There was the letter A. A was for like the anarchic gesture or the any gesture, the anything gesture. <laughs> so then we would just like deploy all of these. I made like a time grid. And then everything ended up organizing it. I was like, even we can't even look like a band or an orchestra. <laughs> we should be like in a line, which is totally wrong. So it's just like, and then we got like a cost. There was like a a shirt. There was this kind of like um, a wedding shirt in pastel colors. A wedding shirt? Yeah, it was like these. Um, I bought them in a place in downtown LA that was for, um, it was like a Mexican shop for weddings. You, you could rent or buy like the used shirts, they were like a dollar. So they had like a placket of ruffles up the button placket, like a, I don't know what you call that, a tuxedo shirt, I guess? Yeah, that's right. But they were in like amazing colors, like light yellow, light blue, light green. So we had those and then, um, yeah, it just turned into, like, everything was very formalized. You know, it was sort of a moment when I thought, like, oh, all of these um, kind of procedural um, skills that I have about, like, organizing people and time and just, like, kind of deploy it all in this completely absurd way. And then it was just so kind of ripe, this metaphor of, like, 
miss, it's kind of like taking the instrument off the body and laying it on the ground and kneeling over them and then like refusing to touch it and then the glass it had a it went cold where like the guitar is hot mm -hmm. right so then we just called it the sheer frost orchestra because those were like two sheer and frost were both for me like icy adjectives that emphasized like our approach being cold instead of hot and it also references the sort of classic trope of of rock and roll or like of that sort of genre of music as being hot exactly so. that's exactly what i mean yeah and then you know this is what i was explaining to this woman on the phone last night i said like if you really want to do this piece you should do it with the technology of the time and there we didn't have any timers or like laptop timers or whatever we the best way to get everyone to be on the same time since there would be no like i hate conductors there would be like no conductor <laughs> there had to be another way so i got three clock radios from the like hardware store Whoa. with the digital letters like the big letter like oh, yeah. the really large oversized ones mm -hmm. so then in order to synchronize those we had to like have a, a few minutes to get it so that people in the ensemble could like go and start them and then sit back down so we would organize it like five minutes to the hour like we would start them so then <laughs> the first performance I realized like everyone was sitting there for a really long time in all these women with guitars, with the amps all humming, because we turned it like all the way up. Because <laughs> that way, it, the piece is not that loud, but if the amp is all the way up, like these little delicate touches produce like all of this amazing results. But they're kind of waiting for the clocks to like. Yeah, so like we were just basically like really hostile. <laughs> but it was really a technological issue, but it seemed that on top of our embrace of like the anti hot, mm -hmm. we were also like really hostile or something or they were just sitting there for a really long time waiting for no one knew why we were just sitting there but we knew we were waiting for zero zero to happen on the clock radius interesting amazing how many times do you think that piece has been very it's not that many you know it's like there were some performances out there and then there was the one in new york and then um San Francisco, and then it went to Europe a few times. Touring. It was never on tour because it always was generated locally. Oh, okay, right, right, right. That makes sense. So it was always like people on site. So then, so then that also sort of was interesting because it was like, well, who should be in this piece? So the second time I did it in LA, I tried to get all the people that had been in it the first time, and like no one was available. So I was like. Oh. Or, you know, maybe two of them were, but I needed 17 people, so... That is like the one classic band trope of like, that they're totally replaceable. <laughs> <laughs> I guess so, that's funny, no one's ever pointed that out. So then, yeah, so then it was just like, it was like, well, who who is a musician anyway? Yeah. So it was another chance to pose like a slightly hostile question. Um, so I was like, decided anyone is a musician who I think has like, style or an interesting seeming personality. Hmm. So sometimes I even approach strangers or I ask people who were, I don't know, had seemed flair. interesting, had flair. You had to have some flair for it. <laughs> it would be like somebody who would be willing to engage with these strange things.
And the, the mostly be so I mean like at galleries or like at I mean I guess there's like each one that's like its own. There were a few times they were in galleries or they were like like the first one outside of CalArts was at um Lace. Do you remember that space? Mm-hmm. LA Contemporary Exhibitions. It was sort of a theater and a gallery and like huh. a non profit. Kind of a hybrid. Yeah. Yeah. I did it once in like a nightclub. Yeah, I was curious how like those things like it goes that context shift like affects. It was like a snowboarder scene, um, <laughs> in this particular place, and it was sort of strange. I wouldn't say it was well received. <laughs> Maybe that's better hard. though. Yeah. It was kind of cool. <laughs> you guys are admittedly hostile. <laughs> <laughs> there was hostility on both sides. <laughs> Saying after we turned the mic off for a second was that um, the sort of it's funny. I used to always start when I did an artist talk with talking about the Sheer Frost Orchestra just because it was such a rich little brew of elements that in a, in a, in a way everything that I've done since then flows in some sort of vector from some discoveries I made hmm. through the process of like enacting that work. Um, and you know, even the sort of idea of like multi-channel sound or like distributing sound in space in an unconventional way was like just a really obvious outcome of having that many amps in a line. Is that if you were an audience person, you would want to walk around that because it would sound different yeah. in different places. But what I was just going to say is that the sort of one of the other very basic thing about that work was simply that I discovered that um, all of these accoutrements of music that were really familiar to me from having a background in music, like a musical instrument, let's say, or a score, um, or even the idea that there was this kind of period of time that you could designate as having heightened uh, features. You know, some might call it a concert, um, but like, let's just say it's a stretch of time that you've you've bracketed, and within those brackets, you you're enacting a set of more precise conditions than are operative in a gen- in the general sense. But the other sort of um, like pivot uh, for me was just that, okay, so it's possible to take all of these common places or like accoutrements of making sound or making music and just see them as sculpture. So the instrument, like to just so, sort of look at the guitar and say the guitar or a rote or 17 guitars mm-hmm. can f- be read as sculpture was a very productive for me, even if maybe that's not true. Maybe actually it's not sculpture. Maybe that's what I would say now. I would say actually it's a guitar. It's a musical instrument, but um, you know, and I like was sort of not into the way somebody at that time, like Lutz Backer, was like doing pieces with the guitars, which I thought were kind of lame. Although I like her now. Elaborate just for people who haven't seen those pieces. Like, oh, yeah. you know, she was like smashing some guitars and so on in a kind of gestural sort of way thing, um, but like just to sort of enact a switch like that as a way of thinking through materials, that was productive. So that also kind of flows out of that piece. So you could sort of say like, in one of the, if, if my work is going to sort of straddle two discourses, if there's something that's very obvious or a given in one discourse, um, 
it may have a very different valence in the other. So like that, the gap between those two possible readings, let's say, or like the two different ways of signifying started to be a space that I could sort of see as a space to work in. Okay. Yeah, you think of something like Christian Markley's like guitar drag, which I almost think of as like time-based sculpture. Mm-hmm in that same vein of kind of transitory space. I think that's a good example. I think that's what I'm talking about. I think that's one of his best pieces, actually. I love that piece. That's such a, um, that's such a strange and difficult to experience piece. I've seen it a few times. Mm -hmm. But so now, like, I mean, because um, I guess what you're in some ways elaborating, like, because now the work is getting kind of more installational in a sense. Or when I when I first proposed, when we were talking about like you during the podcast, like one of the things you said was like, oh, these more recent shows they're like becoming more like material or like sculptural in a way, like where you're making things well, in a different kind of conception. I, I think what I would say is that um, the durations are a bit longer. Like mm. two months is longer than two days. Yeah. Or two months is longer than two hours. But I'm still trying to think about them as durations. That's my own approach to thinking about an exhibition or an installation versus an event. Mm. Um, certain things are possible in one uh, within a certain time frame, and they become impossible over a longer time frame, or they have to be adjusted um, to deal with the longer time. But I haven't done any works that don't address time in some way in some way even if they're in so-called exhibition space versus so how do you think about ephemerality and performativity versus i mean you think of visual artworks predominantly as being although certainly not as a rule as being non-ephemeral as being sort of concrete objects like the guitar in um in Sorry, glossy frost? Sure. <laughs> oh, glossy, never. Sheer. <laughs> my, my bad. <laughs> and I knew that too. I just got freaked out in the moment. Um, you know, think of ice, frozen, cold. I got it. Coming. Okay, it's back. It's, back. <laughs> it's uh, frozen forever in, in my brain. Um, but how, like, how does time, is time sort of inextractable from your work? Or is it, can it be out, outside of the frame? I think um, as, as the works, as the, like, the shows have started to generate some, like, works on paper and objects sometimes, um, those obviously exist in a different modality. Um, so like a set of notations, for instance, um, refer to time, but they don't um, partake in it themselves. They're like, they can be instrumentalized to produce time, a certain kind of time, but they don't, they don't have to be it. Um, but I, I think it's central for me just because um, the sort of uh, compositional approach is still something that I'm wedded to uh, even when it's 
sort of sometimes more sublimated and or more explicit. Is it predominantly graphic notation or? No, I've actually been using um, notes on on lines uh, again at the moment. Um, there are graphic elements. Um, the most recent um, deployment, the most two, the two recent works, um, the show Death Star at uh, Porticus that just closed last weekend, and the um, piece Free Exercise, which I did in Montreal, the Montreal Biennial in October. Marina's a good guest because she does her own segues, which is so useful. <laughs> Am I segueing out of the... Or, no, no, which is because I think those are what we were talking oh, about. Oh, okay. Like, yeah. Well, it's just those are two pieces that I really wrote notes for. Yeah. You know. But can we back, just like, to sure. because I think for people who aren't as familiar with like, that world, just but like let's go back. with the distinction between like uh, graphic notation and like uh, what you're saying, like online, like or what does that mean exactly? Um, well, graphic notation um, is like a term from the mid-century, 20th century, that describes um, scores on paper that are meant to be read and played by musicians, but that don't um, use the same language, they invent a language that would just be maybe germane for that piece. Mm -hmm. And they, um, you know, they deviate from um, not just visually, like the idea that there are these, first of all, they might, they, there may be things that can't be notated with notes on, on a staff that require new symbols, um, but they also sort of philosophically uh, belong to, I guess, what I would describe as um, an inquiry into the distribution of agency or authority between the composer and the performer. So they have tended to kind of take the composer outside of this, out of being like the lawgiver and the performer being the law receiver and then just interpreting how that law would sound or something like that, mm. and actually requiring compositional energies um, from the performer where their decisions are made that are like kind of above and beyond what you would have to do reading sheet music. Interesting. And so for the recent, I mean, so yeah, the, so maybe they the first have side. a different politics. Interesting. Um, yeah, but so I, maybe we'd like to talk about that. And at some point we're going to play music like from, we from these two. Yeah, like I, I will, yeah, yeah. But, um, but Actually, so I just I haven't downloaded it yet, but I think I just got all the recordings from the um, that uh, from the performances just this last two weeks. Oh, cool! Um, in Frankfurt. Yeah, but so um, yeah, so maybe I just just even like go for it. Like Porticus is like this you know space that also has a kind of history, which is interesting. So maybe like um, we'll talk about. Like what it is, and then and then talk well, about. Well, I don't know if I can talk about what this the history of Porticus is because I forget. Yeah. <laughs> but you could check it out. But it does have it has the a listener lot of can great check it out. Yeah, yeah, but it's it's a it's a museum and, and you know. It it's cool and it has a really cool website where it, like the shows are by the number. It's a very effective. Can, yeah. You can go down and like just mm -hmm. click on one and then you'll see that show. Its name always makes me think of a whale, which like I, I sort of like as a drama. It seems like this like kind of otherworldly. Sort of a, it always makes me think of some like '90s band. Port <laughs> also fair. What is it? Portishead. 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 Yeah. Yes. <laughs> That's great. I didn't think of that. Um, yeah. <laughs> 
But so the recent show of yours was called Death Star, and um, and I mean, going back to these sort of compositional things, was I guess assembled from uh, like research that was done in the '90s by Bell Labs, or yeah, I um, I when I was thinking about this space, um, how did you, after I agreed to do the show, I was um, I was like, oh my god, it's really acoustically hard space to deal with it's very echoey and harsh like like if you are it's not that big but if you stand across the gallery from another person and they say something to you all of the articulations are gone like it just sounds like whoa seriously yeah like in a really bad so because it's very high ceilings right all right it's like three stories high yeah it's like a tower wow. it is a tower um so 
I, of course, was immediately intrigued because I like difficult spaces and I like to deal with um, the way... I like things that are falling apart and in flux, as we were talking about. And um, I actually was remembering that I had used this um, microphone array back in 2002 or 2001. I was invited to do a show in New York after the World Trade Center was bombed or came down the, across the street, the Winter Garden, which is now under another name now, it's called Brookfield, I guess, or something like that, huh. by the developers. I mean, that's like the name on the, on yeah. it, but it, it was called the Winter Garden. It's a glass pavilion. It's across West Street from the Trade Center site, mm -hmm. and it was totally smashed up when the towers, the, the shock wave and the debris and everything was completely smashed. So. It was rebuilt during 2001, during 2002, and then they invited four artists to put a group sound installation in it for its reopening. So it was September 11th, 2002. Oh, wow. Um, and I really don't know how I got in there, but it was Laurie Anderson and David Byrne. Wow. And me. <laughs> and, um, and, uh, Ben Rubin, who's wow. a media artist, um, and I remember they took a portrait of us. Timothy Greenfield Sanders took a portrait of us oh, wow. for that, the New York Times, and it was like, I mean, I don't even still have it, and it was like um, Laurie and David Byrne sitting, and me and Ben standing around there, and I was like, oh, it's my like fantasy family. <laughs> I was like, this would be my other family. <laughs> Did you put your hand on your chin? And say, <laughs> no, <laughs> no I, I really looked like a deer in the headlights in the photo, I remember. But um, I was like, oh, this could be like my other... Anyway, so that was funny. But um, So when I was working on that piece, um, I was working at Harvest Works, um, where I had started doing a lot of projects there. Um, the, the wonderful, wonderful Harvest Works and, um, on Broadway in Soho. And um, the engineer that I always work with at Harvest Works, Paul Geluso, he said, oh, Marina, you gotta try it. He's like, you're doing all this crazy multi-channel stuff. I was making this really massive, like many, many channel abstract piece with tiny little sounds of like zithers and my fingers rubbing together. And like, wow. um, he's like, you have to try this microphone array. And I was like, what is it? He's like, I think they call it the Death Star, <laughs> but it's like this weird experiment that they were building at the end of the AT&T sound labs, but they're closing it, so we have like one of them. So I, I recorded sounds with this thing. Right. And actually, I didn't talk about this in the Porticus stuff, so that's a different aspect to this, the background of this, but I did actually use it. It was cool. So when I was thinking about Porticus, I was like, I called Paul, and I was like, Paul, whatever, I need, I need a really strange, I need a way to record in this incredibly unwieldy space. What distinguishes? Where's the Death Star? <laughs> and he's like, that thing is long, long gone. And I was like, oh, that sucks. And so I put it out of my mind. But then I kind of circled back to it. And I realized I could try to build one. I found the patent design online. So what, what, yeah, what is the mechanism that makes it like unusual? Or well, what's, what's 
Um, it belonged to a line of research that completely was dropped and replaced by this sort of exigencies of cell phone communications. Um, but it, it was part of this kind of sound research that I think they called it um, um, perceptual sound field reconstruction. So in other words, the idea would be that with this multi-array in this kind of radiating pattern from a center you, on a boom, you could record like the way a human might, sort of like a subjective account of a space, and then you could reconstruct it in another space using 5.1 or some kind of cheesy 90s like. What would like an application for that be? I mean, I guess it's been used a little bit, like like the interior of luxury cars are like one place I can think of where like 5.1 still is used uh -huh. or something similar to it. It completely was like, no one cares about this. Um, but it was really fascinating at the time. It was sort of like one of, one of the things that was my rallying cry coming up through my education and so on was like this aversion I had to the prevailing idea of this kind of like uh, di the em emergence of like digital hy hygienic aesthetics mm -hmm. which just perturbed me and just didn't match my own sensibilities at all but it's it was very standard to like address audio technology as a kind of continual progress towards a more objective hygienic reconstruction of sonic experience as if there is anything objective or hygienic about the experience of sound, which for me there never has been. Yeah, it seems like that's earlier. been a through line through your yeah. practice, a, a subjectivity of uh, sonic experience and yes. spatial experiences informing. Yeah, like what is it like to be somewhere? That's mm -hmm. very interesting to me. And like what you were saying, when I think we were off mic, what, that when you listen to something, it's always different. Or were we on mic? No, I think I said that. Oh, okay. Good. For posterity. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> it's always hard to tell because David turns it on and off. <laughs> right. Only on you. <laughs> um, we could do a whole other podcast about the dynamic between you two. Yeah, yeah. That's positively true. <laughs> uh, but wait, so what did you record with? with well, so, there? you know, like I couldn't get the Death Star, but I, I started, I was like, why is it? why am I thinking about that still yeah. you know and um, it was mainly and initially just I thought like oh it'd be so interesting to try to you know take this really really unwieldy acoustic environment and and subject it to this device that was kind of the last gasp of this um, trend toward like kind of rescuing an idea of subjectivity or like um, uh, dimensionality, complexity, from the the sort of high the goofy hi-fi world, you know, like sound research world. Yeah. And of course, the Bell Labs has such an incredible storied history in my field, and we, mm -hmm. we love, of course, many of the things and people that were associated with it. Yeah. So, I just thought like it would be so it would be interesting to. Just spend time. I told I for Porticus. I said like I can only do the show if I can spend time there because I have to deal with the way it sounds in there. I don't even know what to say about it. I had so I was able to come for a week in November, and I made a sort of a mock-up of what we built like a, a really 
terrible, bad mock-up of the thing, just to try, and raised it up to the ceiling. And um, it was really fantastic. It accentuated all of the worst qualities of the space. <laughs> you know, it was like where things disappeared, now they really disappeared. Or like where things fed back, now they really fed back. Yeah. Or where, th- where certain frequencies would emerge as overly dominant or something and start to distort everything else, it would really be happening. So, it was fun- so I was like, yeah. oh, okay, so now, now I have something I can work with. Yeah. So in this time between... November and the show going up at the end of February, I worked like crazy, um, listening back to all the things I had recorded. I basically treated Porticus like a filter, like a really distorting filter, like a pedal almost. And I just had fed so many different sounds into it. Um, And then I had the output. And then it was, I also built, I built like a real one of these. I tried to really make one, make a Death Star like the way I remembered it. Yeah. Um, and I found like a few images and a few plans, but basically the thing disappeared because no one cared about it. But so in the show, like the, there was a huge like, there was a huge object up yeah. on the roof that we built. It has seven shotgun mics. Kind of an imposing tower looking, or like. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of delicate looking. It made it out of transparent plexi and and aluminum, and it. Um, it kind of glinted in the sun at some moments and sort of disappeared if you weren't looking closely at others because it was transparent. So it depended on how the light was striking it. Um, but it gathered sound all the time. Like it was recording for two months once it went up. Actually longer because I was there for two weeks getting the thing made mm-hmm. right beforehand. And the sounds, and so it would collect sounds from this soundtrack I was sending to the speakers in the four corners of the room. But it would also um, process those sounds totally analog, acoustically in the space. And then it went through a set of very weird off-kilter delays. So it would come back and then be re-recorded again. But it came back just long enough after that it didn't feed back in a destructive way. So you could actually say something in the gallery and your voice would re-emerge out of the system like 10 or 20 seconds later. So it's kind of always gathering. It was like a surveillance situation in a way. Interesting. Which seems really related to the A plus F piece, right? Or the structure of that. Yeah. So it was like, it was like um, just a very finite set of sounds finally that went in there. It was my voice. Mm either saying words or sometimes fragments of things, singing or speaking a little bit, but just here or there. Everything was set punctuated by like very long silences. Yeah. Then there was some piano music that I wrote, scales, kind of weird scales, and then, or single notes sometimes. And then there was um, noise, like kind of aggressive moments of noise. It's like going back to your CalArts days. Yeah. <laughs> In a way, I mean, I don't think you ever really make anything, but you do. You, I, I try. I try to repeat myself because I don't want to be everywhere. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that was like noise, voice, piano. Maybe this would be a good when I edit in. Like this would be a good place to put it. Yeah, we can. I can give you some. Yeah. You can play it. Yeah. Um, but so so that was like playing like in podcast and then like that kind of material. So yeah, so I I I ended up um, over the course of the exhibition, like beforehand and during once, gathering like keeping some of the recordings, 
and then rendering them back into notation, I developed some notation style that would allow it to be, it's very particular, you have to look at it, but it can be played. Because I noticed there were like, paid the right booklet kind of yeah kind of so stuff. there was these huge books of notation and is that sort of a new like was is that yeah yeah right so i actually want to make a book out of it um but it's hopefully yeah um but it's uh it generated it, it like it it went kind of full circle and came back to being it was at the end of the show this incredible pianist this wonderful pianist i'm working with now Italian pianist named Marino Fermenti. Mm -hmm. He came and he did a five-hour performance where he played through all of these notations. Oh wow! Damn. In the space again, so he's again interacting with like the environment. The book is interesting because it made me. I mean, one of the like other, you know, do lines of you're doing this right it was at one moment we were gonna like try to wrangle you such a which still seems like it would have been impossible. But it, oh yeah, it, it made me think like of or just that like kind of connection of like the way that a text or like improvisation in a script or something which seems like a like interesting kind of through line in your guys work yeah, yeah I think that was um, definitely um, it's been really lovely these couple of collaborations with Yosef where we've had we'll do something publicly but honestly a lot of it is just the conversations that we've had seems like just being world. around him is like the the <laughs> thing kind of, or right or as much of i don't know yeah he just seems like a very interesting person he's very he's a he's a very wonderful person and um he's uh he and i have 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 found ourselves to have a lot to talk about yeah it makes sense yeah um yeah but you have, so that piece, the Death Star piece now exists as a, a, a scored but somewhat um, sprawling two month long plus two week recording, which has, a, has sort of a, a, a means of sort of, of entry, but not necessarily a clear trajectory, right? And then you have the composition, which will be bound as a book, which will be a physical object. So you have like kind of both of the, the parts of your practice that you've been sort of um, ricocheting between in like really concrete sort of. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think that um, I, I resist the object generally historically um, there has to be I don't know why but there tends to be this long and quite um, fraught um, passage to arrive at an object it's it's very particular for me I don't I'm not like the artist who just is like producing objects um, the the object that comes is the result of like this whole kind of passage through um, different states of non-objectness. I think it's partly because for me, like all of these ephemeral things, if you use the word ephemeral, are already object-like to me. They have, they're complete, like I don't uh, feel that I haven't gotten somewhere yet when I'm in a state of like um, space and sound and time, like the, those are very satisfying. Um, 
modalities for me already. Maybe that's the problem. <laughs> <laughs> so to, to go past that to some kind of, um, I, I think of it as like kind of returning to the symbolic state. There's something, maybe, maybe I read too much Lacan, it's like, a, it's like a regression of some kind, but maybe that's also interesting about it. Yeah. <laughs> maybe just the right amount. <laughs> or just the right amount. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, but so then, like, so the other piece, this A plus F piece, which is for documentary, right? Like, yeah. it's, and it's sort of the, like, a 45 minute long, like, series of iterations of things that were recorded at Porticus? Is that... There, it's from Porticus, it's from Montreal. Okay. It's from the East Village, it's from my neighborhood. Okay. It's got, um, different people in there. Yeah. It's like... But these sort of variations on these like bits of, or at least the circuit you were talking about in the porticus, where something like loops back sort of slowly. A little maybe. bit, a little bit. It's more of a composition, obviously, because it has to be. You know what? What it? What it? Um, what? What was I trying to do? You. You know. You got. I got it like an assignment. Yeah. Kind of like, will you make this piece? And. Um, the show is very interesting. I don't know if you read the curatorial statement from the curator. Uh, His name is the Bonaventure So and Deacon. Yeah. And he's um, very interested in who the audiences will be for these radio broadcasts. And there, it's being broadcasted in, I think it's eight different countries. Right, at various times. Like all, all these places that I've never been. Brazil, Indonesia, Cameroon, Lebanon. All places I would go if I could, um, but the very the strong emphasis on transmission and kind of transacting with audiences, combined with the fact that these are places that I haven't been able to visit yet, um, really threw me into a kind of interesting uh, problem. Yeah, it's sort of like he's. Um, wanting to, uh, somebody said this to me and I thought, oh, that is really true. It's kind of like asking us, let's think again about what world music is. You know, we know what world music was in the 20th century. It's a very debased, kind of politically suspect yeah. commercial form that did not result in very much good. Um, but what could it be now? What, what do we even mean when we say the world anyway? Um, so that was the kind of difficult and interesting problem to think about um, like what would one want to transmiss, transmit to an audience in a local cafe in a small city in Indonesia let's say you know what I mean like yeah. I don't I don't want to make even one assumption about the uh, receiver so that's where I started from. Yeah. I thought, like, that's really interesting. And the piece, I, I didn't, try, I didn't want to segue too much, but it does. It has a lot to do with the piece free exercise, which I did in Montreal, yeah. and which was I did two years earlier in Oslo, uh, in Bergen, Norway. Um, and in that piece, um, I tried to set up the condition of unison and disunison as kind of like political terms that a music composition could be organized around. So like there would be this kind of um, p 
political friction or like the opportunity it was sort of like can I compose disunison can I make a space where like things do not become resolved and no um, there's no like kumbaya happy ending it's actually going to be a space of like a composed conflictual space like what would that be like to, as a place for composition Right, the, the text for the documentary piece, right, has this like mathematical kind of like... Yeah, so I, what's, it's, it's borrowed from free exercise with right, a little right. bit of a tweak. So yeah. um, it says, it sort of promotes a set of uh, conditions that this music will be made according to that are possible to read as musical conditions or social political conditions. So it says like, for instance, um, notation follows migration and in the context of free exercise in Montreal and also the one in uh, also that means that you can move in the space it's, migration is not only permitted it's promoted and after that there's notation so you move and then you will find a score so um, disunison follows unison that was a juncture where you read a score in unison two players or three players and then and this is very hard for musicians, you play it again out of sync with each other, with the mm. same complex notation. So that produced the most amazing musical results. It's very hard to do. I'm curious to what extent did the contexts of Bergen and then of Montreal play in your thinking about those pieces? Like the specific place where it's going to go? Yeah. Well, it was funny and I mean the it came about in Oslo in uh, Norway it was around the same time that um wait when did Obama get the no that was earlier then they gave him know. the Nobel Peace Prize it was 2009 it was like already happened I mean I, I had like a funny feeling about Norway just because of that somehow <laughs> like I thought like that was kind of it wasn't really good that that happened because it kind of short-circuited something that might have happened otherwise interesting um, it was sort of a weird moment. But like to address, it was, yeah. right? Yeah, totally. But I think, you know, like it was the first time that it had been proposed to me to work with a military ensemble. And if you're going to do it anywhere that would be like the least bellicose, I guess it would be Norway. So it seemed okay. Um, I thought the military was just an ensemble. No, they were enlisted soldiers. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Basically, yeah. I mean, yeah. So I did that, and then for Montreal, um, you know, there first of all there are the French Canadian regiment there, so that was kind of interesting because the French relate the French Canadians have a sort of adversarial <laughs> relationship to other parts of Canada, as from what I understand, um, they're definitely a minority, um, but they were similar actually in the sense like all of these guys or women are trained musicians, but they've also gone through boot camp and basic training, and they, they've had to follow a bunch of rules, and they are working people. Um, I, I loved them. I mean, they were, they were one or, there's always a few, and this will be true in non-military context too, if you work with an ensemble, there's always a few who treat you like you have no idea what you're doing, and they are condescending or disinterested in a demonstrative way. You can't let that derail the whole thing because there's always that I mean I would say especially as a woman because you're coming in like giving them something to do and they might not like it um, I was going to say like one thing that does seem to come up there was one in your maybe it's the bottom interview but where you're like you sort of talk about the politics of the orchestra or like that is kind of this um, 
I don't know, like symbolic space or something, like which I thought was interesting. And sounds kind of sounds like what you're pointing to in a way here, but I'd be interested to hear. Well, I, I think, you know, I never had a really idealized idea about musicians. Yeah. My father worked in a lot of pit orchestras and he was in the union. We were in still let's say a local eight oh two in New York. We were always you know, like growing up there was the phone book and then the eight oh two book. Well really interesting. Um, that's how you got your jobs. It's like they called, like contractors called. Um, what is the life of a pit musician like? You know, they're not they're not pretentious. Like it's not like this rarefied television idea about what being a classical musician is. Like my dad like watched sports and played the cello. You know, I mean, he had like very um, advanced ideas about music and in his world and so on, but. He also, his friends were like, many of them were, you know, they, 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 they're like, they, they, they're in the union. Like when the conductor is like in the middle of a sentence and if like it's five minutes to the hour yeah. and it's like union certified break, like everyone gets up and walks off the stage. <laughs> like it's not, it's not like um, the same thing as what you would imagine from Hollywood or something like that. So right. I always had that view on it. You know, this is just a very funny kind of dorky. It's a kind of labor, and there's like it's they, it's true. It's it's possible to understand it as labor. Yeah. From that close up, I, and I think that's what maybe you're pointing to, and that for me that was interesting. You know, so like dealing with ensembles or something with like the, these these guys didn't intimidate me. Um, I was intimidated by the scenario of like trying to do something good. You you feel very responsible if you're working with people from outside of the. They're not your buddies from art school. These are like men and women with lives and children, and you know, so you don't want to be bad. Yeah. That's the problem. That's what makes it hard because you should actually be. It should be okay to be bad, but in that sense, you feel like a compulsion to be good. That's a, that's a good at least pausing line. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um. Too long-winded, I'm sorry, but just about like what the relationship of the um, that text is to radio, yeah. which was a very simple fact, which is, do you want me to just say uh, it? Go for it. It's, it's just that um, what was interesting to think about with live bodies, a live audience and live bodies and musicians in a space together having to contend with each other seems impossible to deal with on radio because the other half of the transaction is not present. So right. that's sort of what I'm trying to address in that piece. But also that like feedback, I mean, we're so used to like transmission lines working both ways now, like radio is so old fashioned in a certain way, right? It only goes one. Right. Yeah, exactly. So you get no, I mean, there's no. You learn nothing about the world from broadcasting something out into the world, although you affect it, right? That's the problem. That's yeah. exactly the problem. You're, it's a completely, uh, it, there's this kind of assumption that someone is there, but is anyone there? <laughs> One wonders. Yeah, and I'm asking. Yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, yeah. That's why in the beginning of the piece, I, I decided like to address the audience as Participants, that would be my hope, right? Yeah. Actually, that they could even address the work, the piece itself, as calling for them to commit action in relation to it. So that's why I say in the beginning, hey, producers. Yeah. So I was sort of like addressing them as, as 
as cultural producers, not as receivers per se. I'm like helping. So I'm trying to sort of way. propose a mm-hmm. reciprocality. Yeah, which I mean, yeah, it's an interesting project. Like, or like the whole. Um, I mean, that's not. I mean, it's pretty. I don't know that much about like just documenting. Like, how do those kinds of programs like normally fit within that like structure as like a. I don't know. I've never been to it before. Yeah. This was the first time. It's another one of, you know, those mysterious hallowed things. Yeah. No, there's a lot that was, that is still mysterious to me about it, having just spent a few days there. Yeah. In Athens. What was it like? It was chaotic and confusing. Is it like South by Southwest or? (laughs) I've actually never. (laughs) I'm kidding. Probably a little bit.
Induction Murders is by Kat Cron and David Rosen. More episodes in time. All audio from Marine Rosenfeld. If you are interested in this thing, please leave positive feedback on iTunes. Indeed on all your outward facing platforms. Thanks you.